Today, we're going to continue what we've been doing this whole Advent season is taking a step back and considering the big picture of Christmas. And just looking beyond the shepherds and the angels and, and the innkeeper and, and the star and all those things. And taking a step back and from the Gospel of John, considering what was really going on at Christmas was that light was coming into darkness. That Jesus, the light of the world, was coming into a world of, of darkness and sin to, to bring light and life to that which is dark and dead. So today we're going to consider the notion of seeing that light. Because God has a problem. God's problem is that he's invisible. As verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. It's a problem for God. I think invisibility is really cool. If you think about superpowers and, and the different ways we could portray a superpower and a superhero, you know, super strength would be kind of cool and useful. The ability to fly. Some people would just love the ability to just fly anywhere they want. Being able to shoot webs out of your wrist or ice or fire out of your hand. Anything you could shoot out of your hands would be really cool. But think about invisibility. You go anywhere. You, go, you could go uh, to the meetings of world leaders. You could walk right into the Oval Office. You could hear everything that's going to happen. You could go to sporting events and watch the Super Bowl from the 50-yard line and just be right in the middle of the action. You could be anywhere. Invisibility would be cool for us. But for God, it presents sort of a challenge. So what did God do? This is what God did. He sent his son. Jesus makes God visible and known. So what I want to do today is answer three questions. One, how has God made himself known? Secondly, what fundamentally has God made known about himself in his heart and his character? And thirdly, how do we respond? How do we respond to how God has revealed himself? Now, if you're here this morning and you're just exploring Jesus and you're exploring this Christian thing, uh, what you're going to see is right at the core of how Christians relate to God. And I'll tell you this, it shatters, it absolutely shatters what most of the world thinks it means to be in relationship with God or to approach God, to relate to God. So I hope you see that this morning. For some, in this teaching is very foundational and it's very basic in a lot of ways. For many of you, you might say, well, this is quite too basic. I know how God has revealed himself. Uh, the temptation then would be to tune this out. But here's why this message is crucially important to us. That we all have a sinful nature that we're fighting against. And that by God's spirit, he's transforming. Yet this sinful nature is still there. And because of that, we are inclined to approach God in ways that run counter to how he's actually revealed himself. So what God has revealed about himself is clear, and the way that we should respond to him is pretty straightforward, yet we, yet we take other paths as we seek to approach God. I struggle with this. We all struggle with this. So this message is, is for all of us. Let's pray as we approach it. So Father God, we thank you for what we celebrate. We thank you for Jesus, for light coming into the darkness, for light coming into our darkness, Lord. And we pray during this time that you would search our hearts and show us what you want to show us. That you would speak to us, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit. So come and do your work. We give this time to you. We give ourselves to you. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the first question. How has God made himself known? Now, I'm going to use a, a term, what I'll call progressive revelation, that God has been revealing himself throughout history to the world he created. That he's been unfolding who he is to the world. And with anything that is profound or requires deep knowledge, progressive revelation makes sense to us. If you were a brain surgeon, you don't go to brain surgery 101 class and then are able to then perform brain surgery on somebody. You don't, you don't start there. You would always start with a biology class and biochemistry and anatomy and physiology and it, it, right through all the medical disciplines. And then at some point, you take a class where you would learn actually how to do brain surgery. But you don't start there. Because it's too much to, to take in all at once. We teach our children this way. We use progressive revelation to teach our children about big issues and things in life. Things like sex or death or even sensitive subjects like divorce. Uh, and it's a good example because if you don't progressively relay things like this to children, what you end up doing is giving them the talk, which is horrifying children. Some of you have been through the talk. We, it's, what instead we do is we have teachable moments along the way where we, as it's appropriate by age, to explain some of these profound realities of life. So the more, and the more profound the reality, the more that it, we need to have it given to us one step at a time. This is how God has revealed himself to us. He's revealed himself even just by his creation. The Bible says, Romans chapter 1, that what we what God has made, the world around us, points to his eternal power, his divine nature. It's clearly seen by all people. This is a very general way that God has revealed himself. But there's more. So God has given us special revelation. He's revealed himself, even, his, even just the physical presence of God. In, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were in perfect fellowship and communication with God. But they sinned. They went their own way. They disobeyed God. And that polluted their relationship. And God is perfect and he is holy and he is sinless and pure light. And humans have become polluted by sin. And what is pure cannot be near this pollution. So God has to cast them out of the garden. And since that time, we can't be in God's presence the same way because he is so pure and holy. But God has still revealed himself to us, but in a very veiled kind of a way. There was a, a time when God was speaking to Moses, and Moses said, he said, Lord, show me, show me your glory. And you know what God said to him? He said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. That if you were to see my glory, my holiness, my radiance, you would die. Because you are not holy. That is how majestic and great and powerful God's presence is. Yet, he gives glimpses of it. That God led his people, as, and the people saw it as a, a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. And God gave specific instructions in their worship how to, to build this, this meeting house, this tent. And his presence was known there. And, and, and the, later in the temple, the same thing. But very, not very approachable, certainly not directly approachable. 
and certainly not by most people most of the time, but God was giving glimpses of his glory that could be seen. But he was also not just revealing his, his presence, but his heart. So through the Old Testament scriptures, God is unfolding and is showing us his heart. He gives his people the law. The law is, is a, a way of life, a way of relating to God and relating to your neighbors, a way of, uh, of finding forgiveness for sin, a, a way of, of worship, a way of administering justice. And we see God's heart in that. And then there was the prophets, and they spoke God's warnings, and they spoke God's words of encouragement and words of hope. And God's heart is being unfolded. And then finally, in our text today, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ, verse 18. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made himself known. Has made him known. So Jesus makes God known. The 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 covering that allows us to look directly at God's glory without dying is Jesus, God in human flesh. The writer of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets many times in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe, The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful world, by his powerful word. This is is God in the flesh. That's how God has revealed himself in all those ways, but most fully through Jesus. But our second question is, what has God made known about himself? Fundamentally, what is this all about? And I'll sum it up with one word. Grace. Verse 16. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace. In place of grace, already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace. The word grace is a very powerful word. It means unmerited favor. Something you never deserved. Something I never deserved. I could not earn it. God's free gift. His grace. And the same God revealing himself throughout history past in the Old Testament is is God of grace. I'll sometimes hear somebody ask the question or raise the criticism, say it seems the God of the Old Testament is this God of, of wrath and anger, but the God of the New Testament, now that's a God of grace. I understand grace through Jesus, but everything before seemed, it doesn't seem grace to me. But even here, Jesus is a grace on top of the grace already given. The law given through Moses is grace. The law was good. The law pointed people to God and how good he was and how serious sin was. That the law pointed the nations around God's people to see who he was. You know, what kind of nation is this that they have such excellent laws? What kind of God do they worship? Think of it like this. Under the old, the old covenant, the covenant of law, the promise that God made to his people, the law is written on tablets of stone. And the people consider the law and they say, look at these laws. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't take things that don't belong to you. Don't, don't covet after things that are not yours. These are great laws. 
If, if we lived like this, we'd, we'd be a good society. This is a good way to live. Let's do it. Let's try. So the people tried to live out these great laws. And what happened? They couldn't. They continually fell short and they continually failed at this beautiful way of life that God had laid out. And instead of it being this grace and this blessing, it became a great burden and a weight on the people. What do we keep falling short as desperately as we try to obey? And God says, look, I know you're weak. I know you fail. I'm going to do something new. And here's my promise. This law that's you know, this on top of you, this weight, I'm going to put this inside you. You won't even feel the weight, and I'm going to give you the power to obey it. Not only will it not be a burden, but it will be your joy to follow and obey. The prophet Ezekiel, through the prophet Ezekiel, the Lord says, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And through the prophet Joel, he says, afterwards, I'll pour my spirit out on all people. God says, I'm gonna, my promise is that my spirit's available for everybody, and it's going to empower you. It's going to become the power source to obey. Great promise. So when is it going to happen? When's it coming? And the people were waiting and waiting in and, and years, even hundreds of years. And then finally, as Galatians chapter 4 says, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under this law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive full rights of children. See, Jesus, he himself said, I didn't come to abolish the law. He said, I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come, to, I have not, come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This, the, the, the grace of God's law doesn't just go away. It's not that it was bad, it was a grace, but it gets fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus, all the righteous requirements of the law, Jesus fulfills them. He could actually meet the standard. So he fulfills the law. Now there's parts of that law that because they are fulfilled by Jesus, they don't apply to us. The whole sacrificial system of Jesus gave himself as the ultimate sacrifice. Once for all. So we don't need to continue to offer the sacrifices as as the law prescribes because Jesus has done that for us. All the civil laws that pertain to the nation of Israel, we don't need to follow all those civil laws because we are not just a political nation of people. We are a, a spiritual family that transcends nations. It's for all nations. And, and it transcends our ethnic backgrounds and all these other boundaries. So some of those civil laws don't apply to us, but, it's, but Christ has fulfilled it for us, and we receive that by grace. So there's the grace of the law, and on top of that grace, more grace through Jesus. So it's no longer this burden, but it's been fulfilled for us. And this is all grace. So I guess the thing to take away from this is don't look at the Old Testament as some failed plan that God gave this plan that, that failed. It's a plan that was fulfilled in Jesus. And I don't know how familiar you are with the Old Testament, with, your, with, with the Old Testament scriptures, but as you know Jesus, they come alive in a whole new way. 
But it's, it's not what you would think when Jesus has fulfilled all these things for us. You could picture a, a Christian in the, in the first century, and they're in their neighborhood, and they have a, a pagan neighbor, and the neighbor says, oh, you're, you're a Christian. This is this new religion. So where's your temple? Christian says, well, um, we don't, don't really have a temple. Jesus is, is sort of the temple. He's the, the cornerstone, and we, his people, are like a building, but we don't have a, a place. It's, it's us. Oh, it's a little weird. What about, I mean, if you don't have a temple like that, how do you make sacrifices to earn your God's favor or to earn forgiveness? How do you do that? And so, well, we don't make sacrifices. Jesus sacrificed himself for us. He's, he's, he's accomplished it, so we don't have to do that. We don't earn God's favor. God's favor has come to us. Huh, that's strange, my new Christian neighbor. God's grace. We don't earn it. We don't achieve it. We don't bring it about. It's given to us. So what do we do with it? Our third question, how do we respond to what God has revealed about himself, that he is a God of grace? The answer is loving obedience. Our relationship to God's law and to God's way is now even greater. Not that it's, it's done away with, but we are now free to pursue God's way not as a burden, but because we've been loved so greatly. Think about Mary. A little manger scene here, a little statue of Mary. Mary was a, a, a very blessed woman. She had the great privilege of holding in her arms the Son of God, the creator of the world, the Savior of sinners. It, it was a privilege to conceive in her womb and, and nurse at her breast, the child who was the Son of God, the ruler of heaven and earth, the Savior of mankind. And the angel says to Mary, blessed are you among women. And, and the angel says, all, nation, all, all generations will call you blessed. And Jesus comes on the scene, and he's teaching and he's in a crowd, and there's a woman who recognizes that there's something special about Jesus, and she shouts out. This is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. The woman shouts out, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Blessed is that woman. And you know how Jesus responded to that? He said this, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Catch that? He said, blessed is the woman who held you, who nursed you, who bore you. And Jesus said, you know what's even more blessed than that? Hearing God's word and obeying it. You are more blessed than even Mary. As great as her role was, as we, as we know God's law and his way, and as we are obedient to it, we, we experience great blessing. The, the theologian Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. He says, "'Tis more blessed to have Christ in the heart than in the womb. Tis more blessed to have Christ in the arms of faith and love than in the arms of, of the, the, as, the, as the Virgin Mary had. It, because we've been loved by God and we have his spirit to empower us, we can love and we can obey in ways that, we, that were impossible before. Like you never imagined. 
In a dark and troublesome world, and this world is dark and it is troublesome, we can have the strength to persevere, to continue to be motivated by God's love for us. Hopeful expectation of all that he promised will be fulfilled as as his promises are good. Let me illustrate it like this, and I have to apologize because I'm going to break up a preaching rule. Um, So... preaching class in seminary, they said, be very careful how you use a sports illustration because you're going to alienate half the people who don't like sports and that sort of thing. But because it's Christmas, your gift to me, if you'll indulge me for a minute, I want to share a video, <laughs> uh, uh, share a video with you. This is from uh, 2013. This is the Eastern Conference uh, finals, the Stanley Cup playoffs. This is the Boston Bruins versus the Pittsburgh Penguins. You're going to see, a, the, and for those of you who care nothing of hockey, you're about to see this is called a power play. A power play is when one team has more skaters on the ice than the other team because a player has a penalty and they're off the ice. So here the Bruins are trying to kill the penalty and the Penguins, it becomes much easier to score because they have more skaters. I hope that as a hockey lesson was good enough. But here we go. So you'll see right here this player, Gregory Campbell, he's going to dive and block a shot right there. He's on the ice. That shot, the puck broke his leg, shattered his leg. And he's down on one knee, and he's, but he gets up, and he's trying to continue to skate on his broken leg, and he's still trying to kill this penalty. And he can, barely, he can barely move, but he goes over and he picks up his glove, and he knows his leg is broken, by the way. I remember seeing this live. I wasn't sure what was wrong with him, because it happened quick. He slashed that guy right there. But he's still putting his stick into the passing lanes and doing everything he can to stop this. Now, this game, they ended up, he ends up skating for 45 seconds, almost a full minute, uh, while they're killing this penalty. And, and the Penguins did not score during this time. You can see him hobbling. And then they finally get the puck out of the zone. And you'll see Gregory Campbell as it plays out. He's going to skate. He's over here. He's going to limp over to the bench and just try to get off the ice so another player can get on in his place. And that's, you can kind of stop it there. Um, So the question we have to ask, Gregory Campbell, why did you keep skating? Why would you do that? And I don't know the the reason that he gave as he talked to reporters about this, but I could imagine some different scenarios, things he might say. If you say, Gregory Campbell, why did you keep skating when your leg was broken? Why just stay on the ice? He might say, well, I'm afraid of my coach. My coach yells at me when we fall down. If we don't get up, coach yells. And I don't want coach to yell at me. I'm afraid of him. Okay? We say, Gregory Campbell, why did you keep skating? He might say, well, you know, I knew, I knew my leg was broken. And I knew my season was over, maybe my career. But I thought if I got up, maybe uh, that people would think that was brave. I might get a contract. Maybe a contract with another team or an endorsement deal from, from Bauer or Under Armour or one of these companies. And it, if I just showed how brave I was, they'd want to pay me money so I could, I could, I could earn something from this. Oh, kind of selfish, right? <laughs> what if he were to say, well, you know, that puck hit me. I knew my leg was broken, but, you know, I get a paycheck to play hockey. And I was on the ice, and I get paid to play hockey, so I keep playing. And that's what you do. It's my duty to keep playing. Okay. It's kind of noble, I guess. But what if you were to say this? Look, I love my teammates. 
I love my team. I knew my season was over, but I had a sense that my teammates still had an opportunity to win. And I wanted, to, I wanted them to have the joy of winning, and they've, they've had my back all season. We, they've worked hard for me, and they've gotten in fights for me. And I wish I could have done more, but as long as my heart was beating and I was on the ice, I was going to get up, I would do anything for my team. Think about this. In a dark world, we fall down, we fall short, but we get up again. And we follow an invisible God and we obey with radical obedience to the point where we give sacrificially of ourselves, of our resources. Why? Why, Christian, do you do that? We, we walk in faith with... We, we walk in faith with all of our heart, not because... God's going to get mad at us if we don't. Not just to get something in return from God. Oh, maybe God, if I'm obedient here, maybe God will give me a miracle or a blessing or something in my life. We don't obey because it's just, that's just what you do. We're just good people. Good people obey God. We obey because we've been loved so greatly. Jesus gave everything for us on the cross, his very life. And we're invited to be part of his family and part of the kingdom he's ushering in. So we follow and we obey with all of our might, knowing that his promises are good and that he will never leave us, never forsake us, and that he is with us to the very end of the age. May that always be our motivation. And let us celebrate it this Christmas. Jesus has come and he has made God's grace and truth known to the world. Amen.